Good morning. Red buzzards. Red buzzards. I've been wanting to say that for two weeks. Yeah, right? Oh, my bad. I stole your thunder. No, that's all right. It's okay. I'm... You can say it again. All right. Good morning. <laughs> oh, you mean the fret buzzards? Not yeah. like, good morning. Did you guys notice I have thankful back? Oh. No. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, was, I was cajoled. Really? Yeah, oh, yeah. That's another story for another day. <laughs> Maybe uh... do an episode on, uh, on guilt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One episode? No, no, series. Right? Yeah. All of November as we're approaching Thanksgiving. (laughs) I imagine that was a a gift from someone and it needs to be in the the picture. What do you mean? The pillow? The thankful pillow? No, it's my wife trying to decorate the office. No, no. She's like, I thought you heard the story. This is like our, so this is our office space, right? Mm -hmm. And used to be my music studio. And you know, kind of we share the space with books and you know, on this side where you can't see off camera, I got like walls of books and everything and her stuff. And so I said, when we started this podcast, I said, can I turn this into a place like Aaron's got, you know, that didn't go over. <laughs> so we compromised to make it look kind of professional looking. I got stuck with the pillow. <laughs> so it, was, it incited a pillow war. <laughs> and the pillow war was like, I would literally t- flip the pillow over to the backside during the taping and flip it back when we were done until that kind of caused a problem. So now I'm going to get you a Gene Simmons pillow. This just what, like, does it have the tongue? Yeah. The, the tongue to set it right next to thankful. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh shit. Uh, uh, that's if I get a turkey pillow with the tongue, tongue next to the feathers. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> did you miss me last week? Yeah, right. Well, it's definitely different not having you. Uh, <laughs> man, there's no way. It was so bad. I'll tell you, it was just it was horrible. I never got hit with any sickness like I did. Well, I mean, like last year maybe, but it's it's pretty pretty awful. And I know I know teachers I've worked with that. Their, their immune systems are like iron walls, but that's after like 20 some years and around children. <laughs> I'm not there. I'm, st- I'm still getting whacked with everything, but whatever. It is what it is. <clears throat> so I'll be clearing my throat a lot, but that's what coffee's for, I guess. So the list I sent you guys, I, I know I have a lot to say on this today that could take literally an hour just to the mind, but so why don't we just kind of dive in? Yeah, so, let's, let's see, see where it goes. Um, and if we start to... Are we serious? It's really? Okay. Wait, ha- say something so we can see that on the uh, screen. No, it's Sesame Street Fever. Well, I got to pull it up. Grover. Wow. Huh? I have no idea what that is. It's I mean, Sesame I know what Sesame Street is, but I don't know what that album is. Dude, how do you not? No, I'm kidding. I'm just a joke. <laughs> did you know with, in the vein of that that Leonard Nimoy did a double album as Mr. Spock from Star Trek? Really? Oh, yeah. It was called The Two Sides of Leonard Nimoy. It was a double disc. I swear to God, I'm not making this up. On the first disc, it was him just singing his normal stuff, right? Yeah, or just yeah, kind of right. standards and stuff. And on the second disc, it was him as Mr. Spock from Star Trek singing. And he did a video, or he actually made a music video that was like largely panned for its kind of cheesiness. But mm-hmm. it was like the Ballad of Bilbo Baggins. You guys never seen this thing? That has to be on YouTube. Oh, it is on YouTube. Yeah. It, I mean, in fact, I want everybody in the audience today, all of our subscribers go watch the, the Ballad of Bilbo Baggins by Leonard Nimoy. You will sit there. It will blow your mind. You come out of it going, my life will never be the same. There are certain images you cannot erase from your brain. That's one of them. And trust me. Okay. Done. Check it out. He was into like folk song, which is crazy to think about. All right. Well, who's going who's gonna to throw out an album to start this? You go. Yeah, me? go, Joe. Go, yeah, Joe. Go. go. Okay. Um, so this is something I didn't discover until later on, but um, Eric Johnson's Venus Isle is, Love it. I think, just it changed the way I, like what I strive to be able to do on the guitar in a lot of ways. Is that the one with the, uh, there's a second track on there I loved, uh, Battle We Have Won. Is that his, is that the album? Uh, all about the second track or? I think it's the second track. The first track. Venus Isle was the first track, right? The title track. And then I think, so Venus Isle and Battle We Have Won. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Okay. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Okay, go. I'm sorry. 
just make sure I have the right record. No, I think that there's some, there's some like cheesy 80, 80 sounding music. Like his singing is kind of uh, whatever to me, yeah. but he yeah. just like, I think it's in the end of all about you. He just, just rips in his Eric Johnson way. Mm. And so I like, I just, I'm mesmerized by his playing and I realized I found him more through Joe Bonamassa. Yeah. I realized that the thing, the things I like most about Joe Bonamassa are the things he took from Eric Johnson, which is fine. Like I'm glad people are playing like that. Cause I like to listen to it, but Eric Johnson uses a lot of um, patterns of sixes and fives. Right. Um, a lot of ascending and descending pentatonic patterns. And uh, Troy Grady over at Cracking the Code has done an incredible job of s- taking video of Eric Johnson and like going slow motion and like looking at the actual series of alternate alternate picking and sweeping to change strings. And uh, I've taken that and I I try to incorporate it into my playing. I mean, I, it's somewhat natural now. It's how I move about the strings when I'm playing more rock kind of stuff. EJ, uh, I remember Aaron probably remembers the story. We got into, well, it was me. I got into it, but I mean, we were both fans of Eric Johnson for a while. And there was a time when we were at the black note studios. Um, mm-hmm. and we were, I remember we were watching Eric Johnson on video play during his performance on Austin city limits. Remember this Aaron? Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And we were like, we were watching we were, and at this point, Aaron and I were into the analytical phase of things. Like we were mm-hmm. like breaking things open. Like we, you know, look at rewinding like 10 seconds over and over and over again to kind of check things out. And I remember just looking at that going, he was so dead on except for he was so nervous. Remember this? We talked about this. He was, cause he was playing in his hometown. Yeah. He was and nervous and he was, and he was stiff. And yeah. there's, there's a some, spot where you can actually see he makes a mistake. He makes a mistake. And he like shakes yeah. Ah, yeah. 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 It's incredible. Um, but then, you know, we, we got into, I remember there was a time we were teaching a lot of Eric Johnson licks in the studio and we talked about just the very thing, like how he structures everything. I love the fact that he was prim- primarily a pentatonic player, you know, or at least in the, in, in the, in the umbrella of pentatonic forms, but mm-hmm. was so tasty about the way he would phrase and, and like you said, how he would stack things. And for me, his, his chordal arpeggiation, like taking, oh, yeah. you know I mean? Just like red arpeggios, or, red arpeggios, right? He hits root, then the fifth, on the next string and then he jumps up to the third and sometimes the so seventh, a tenth. Put, yeah 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 right and, and he would put these kind of you know these non-harmonic tones in there too to kind of sweeten sweeten and then you know um but going back to your <clears throat> venus isle album by the time he gets to venus isle i think it's becoming more i don't want to say more pop i mean that battle we have one track i re- always love the texture of it mm-hmm. and his, his vocal kind of styles but i have you ever heard tones his first record, the one before Avia Musicom, that yeah. album was like whole. I mean, first of all, it's country based, so yeah. it's not really the the rock shred that Avia Musicom brings out. It's got more of a country flavor. But if you really want to get into like EJ's power, you know, and when he was like really developing his technique, those first two records are just are just off the charts. Yeah, it's crazy. crazy. He, but he's also got uh, he's got an album he did with Mike Mike Stern. Yeah, yeah, the jazz guy. Tell you, and uh, yeah, Mike Stern's. I got actually got to meet Mike Stern. He's awesome, awesome player. Um, he's played with a lot of really famous players, but um, they do a great like they've got some cool back and forth, and it's cool to have two virtuosic, totally different sounding guitarists playing alongside each other. And they just, I mean, Eric Johnson just shreds on that in his Eric Johnson way. Yeah, although the one thing about EJ, I, I, I never want to paint guitar players in a, in a negative light, but at the same time, <laughs> who's laughing? Is Aaron laughing? <laughs> um, and Aaron and I have talked about this. Like We spent uh, months in our studios teaching Eric Johnson stuff. Mm-hmm. After a while, it becomes very homogenized, very flat in the ear. I don't know what it is. I, I've always said this about his work. I, I mean, I love this guy's playing. I've incorporated elements in my own playing style, but dynamically speaking, I always wish Eric would have more of like, he'd breathe more in his dynamicism. He's so good at like putting emphasis on tone 
Like you ever notice, like when he puts little, uh, he hits certain notes and he puts pinch harmonics in certain notes and they just mm-hmm. sing and they, you know what I mean? Top of an ascending yeah. run, he'll do it. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. But I always wanted to see him kind of have, play more volume, you know, yeah. be be more breathing dynamically. And I think there, he's he's more kind of flat. He's respect. just a, he's a clean player. I mean, yeah. the way he approaches his lines and it's that was the one thing for me at the beginning of listening to Eric was he's just so freaking clean. Like it's it's crazy how crisp his playing is. Um that's the one thing that I really enjoyed. But I too I do definitely understand what you're saying Tony in terms of it you just kind of want him to kind of take it just to the next level or whatever that is. I remember seeing uh, 1993, I think it was, somewhere around there. I uh, went up to Boston and saw the G3 tour with Joe, Steve, Eric, and they had Adrian Leg uh, mm-hmm. open for him. Uh, and I actually got backstage passes and met Joe and Steve. Um, but the funny thing was I actually had backstage passes to meet Eric, <laughs> but he never showed. Um, but yeah, that was just, that was a really, really good show to be able to kind of watch them. All three of them kind of work together. I know you were talking earlier, Joe, about how Mike Stern, Mm -hmm. um, they kind of get that togetherness thing. I mean, that's the, I don't, it just does those, the, um, G3 tour still go on. Yeah, I think so. I think it's still going on. Still going on. That's good. We we saw with who, who's on the bill? Yeah. Yeah. Didn't they have um, Tommy Emmanuel up there with him? Or am I thinking of a different? Ooh, I don't know. I saw some video with Satriani and Tommy Emmanuel and another one of the. I don't know. Petrucci gods. played with them, I think. Yeah, Petrucci was there. Ingve was on it when we were there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but oh. Eric, Eric is uh, Eric's just a clean player. Venus out for me. Um, that was probably my, probably my introduction into Eric as well. Um, I think coming out of cliffs of dover i mean cliffs of dover i mean everybody knows that as soon as they hear it they're like wow that's just amazing okay check this guy out uh but venus isle was a different direction for eric he uh he kind of i don't know it was it wasn't the same eric yeah i wasn't sure what he was going for on that record right that, that for me i listened back i mean i like it i like parts of it but i'm not sure like what's the what's sort of the direction of that thing you know like like you said obviously musicom i mean it was very clear what he was trying to convey like here i am so i can play <laughs> here's how I can write. I can do a little bit of singing, but I'm going to burn your face off now. Right. Right. I mean, I just think get the same kind of power out of Vsoft. That was more of like, I'm going to play with artistry a little bit. And that's great. I mean, it's all, all that stuff is great, but I think the overall effect on that record was, it, it's hard to equate the, any of his albums together, but I remember once I was, I was um, in a record store and I saw this one guitar player, the local guy I knew. This is right when Pink Floyd's Division Bell came out. Remember that album? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it had just been released, and I was going to pick up a copy, and I saw this guitar player friend of mine that was in a band, and I said, hey, Sean, I said, uh, did you listen to this record yet? And he's like, yeah, I just bought it. I go, what would you think of it? He goes, it's Floyd. You know, it was like that, that kind of mentality, like I've heard it before kind of thing. And, and I was always you know, kind of scared of albums that, that do that. Like I always wanted to hear on a different record, new directions, new things. Mm. And mm-hmm. for me, I, Venus Isles got some gems on it, but I, there are some fillers I think on there too. But I, th- I really like the, there are some songs that were almost theatrical in their, like their build up and the, the momentum behind them. But he had, I mean, going from all about you has just like, this theatrical buildup and then he just rips like four and a half minutes in. He just, he has like one of the best solos in the whole album. I think in terms of his, the energy he builds and you know, he's flashy and, but then he gets into like Stevie SRV. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Different different tones going on in his guitar. And he, he actually plays a little bit more like Stevie kind of licks. Cause that was a huge influence on him early being from Texas. Yes. Yes. But then Manhattan's got some really cool jazzy chords. Um, a lot of a lot of, a lot of uh, octave moves, like like a, yeah. like a West Montgomery kind of things on there. Yeah, yeah. And then you go to like Camel's Night Out is one of my favorites. Like that one, he's got this very. He's playing with a lot of uh, Mixolydian variations of his pentatonics, mm-hmm. and it really gives it a different flavor. And that song inspired me a lot more to to dig into what you can do with his 
style. So like going back to what I was saying about the patterns of sixes and sevens, like Troy Grady shows you how to do that, but it's mostly um, just in one box kind of area, like your main pentatonic box that everybody knows, because that is the easiest place to do it. But I started experimenting with uh, like a mixed Lydian pentatonic box, a root major third, four, five, three. And like suddenly it's stunning, but the same sorts of patterns give you that cascading effect with your lines. And then moving around, it's how to like shift between different areas of the fretboard um, with slides. You watch Eric does it incredibly well and changing direction. So then it's like, you're kind of, you're, you're playing these lines and you're trying to control the direction of the lines. Yeah. So, I was, yeah, I was, I was, I was just going to say like, I mean, I think it's uh, a lot of it is like no choice, but at the same time, it's a lot of it is fretboard mechanics. Like yeah. how he sets up the sequencing, like he can shift into like a pentatonic three note per string idea within the middle of that run. And like you said, you know, like put things into like a seven form or something like that, that make it flow better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. Great player. Yeah. I do want one other thing that he does with the spread uh, is the root 310, putting the third on top. He's really, often he, um, he'll he take a chord progression and he'll play those arpeggios and uh, resolve the chord just at the right moment. It's really, really tasteful when he does it. I just think he's... He's got a lot going for him. And he has an entire album where he plays straight jazz that's like really well done. He uses a hollow body guitar. And yeah, I really I enjoyed that album. Yeah, he was he would moved over to the three thirty five, right, at some point. I can't remember where that was, but I want to say like he, what, like mid early two thousands, he sort of moved over there for some He things. played that at the House of Blues show that you were talking about for a couple songs in the middle. Mm-hmm. Switch yeah. from a strat. He's such a tasty player. Yeah, so that's my uh, one of my most influential albums in terms of affecting my playing style. Does he have any recent stuff out? What's his most recent? I don't know. That's uh, a good question. I haven't followed him in a couple of years, so I'm not sure yeah. what he's doing now. He does have a couple, a, a couple of good albums out. He there's one. It has the track Columbia, which I really like. But he like he's not as fast as he used to be. But he still sounds like Eric. I did see a show recently. It's funny you said I did see a show um, recently where he was playing some kind of festival. And he was trying to rip burn it. And he didn't have the same control. It was like a few years ago. Yeah. And I, I mean, it was an off night or something. But, you know, at the same time, it's got to be tough, right, to you know have that level of technical mastery and maintenance it. I mean, when he's in his 20s, he was probably playing like we used to talk about like 10 hours a day. Yeah. Keep those things up. And I mean, now he's how old is he now? It's fifties, gray hair, yeah, yeah. So I mean, so I mean, like anything else, you just you can't you lose it after a while. But yeah, absolutely, it's okay. I don't play like I used to. (laughs) (laughs) That's why we record it, (laughs) right? I could do it. All right, Aaron, what do you got on the list? We're trying to. Uh, mine's a completely different direction. Um, That's that's fine. Lay, Lay it on us. So, from. What our what we had said originally was okay, most influential albums, and that to me was just overall musically, uh, not guitar. Um, and that one would be my very first <laughs> Jesus Christ Superstar. This is my most probably influential album ever. Um, mainly and the main reason is because uh it was my first introduction to concept album um it was amazing that i could go from beginning to end and have a complete story that for me was like oh this is amazing um it changed music for me forever um and especially this album because it has uh, for me, from for such a, an early age, um, it had time signature changes. It had, I mean, it was just put together so well. And at a young age, I had no idea what was going on. But 
because I listened to it over and over and over, it was just ingrained in me in terms of all these things musically that were happening. And it wasn't until later on in life where I started figuring out, whoa, this part's in, you know, 5-8 or there's certain things that are going on. Um, it was just for me something that was like, wow, I didn't realize that you could do so much with it in an album. And that whole concept album um, really played into my life later on where it was, okay, so you have the musicals. For me, something like uh, Les Miserables or Cats or Phantom of the Opera or I got into that whole Broadway thing because of this whole concept thing. Uh, that really fascinated me in terms of the idea of a story, be it um, even going into something like Tommy's The Who or, you know, Pink Floyd. Uh, those types of things really appealed to me as an artist at a young age. It really said to me, okay, this is what you can do musically on a much grander scale. And this actually leads into my next album, which we can talk about later, but the Beatles and how um, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band started off as a concept album, but didn't end up that way. Um, but then that got me into the whole Beatles thing. And that's all, oh gosh, that that's huge. Who was the composer on that An first bit? Andrew Lloyd Webber. All right, you guys, can, you guys can literally throw stuff at me now. I've never heard it. Jesus Christ Superstar? Never heard it. I I gave it I listened to most of it. I didn't watch the the uh movie or the, the live action play nope. that I've never seen it. never seen it. Yeah. I mean I realized the, the, the cultural impact of that record, having mm -hmm. heard about it. And if I'm not mistaken, isn't it based on the last hours of, of before the crucifixion? Is that kind of like the yeah. is that the story it's telling? Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm not too um, religious. I'll say it that way. I'm more yeah. spiritual. Um, but that it was just more along the lines of it's a concept. It's this story that can take you from point A to point B. It wasn't just, you know, here's a song and then on to the next song and on to the next song. It was an actual, like, this is a concept. Right. You got to pull the camera back to see the entire picture, basically. Right. Yeah. And that, and I have to listen to the whole album to, to understand exactly what's going on. It's not like, okay, here's a single. Uh, it was, you know, here's the next hour <laughs> and we're going to sit down and listen to this, this thing, this masterpiece. And that was just like, Oh, oh. My students are always, always like flabbergasted when I say this, that I have a hard time with musicals. You're like, but how? You're a musician. How do you have a hard time? Because for me, it's like I'm a purist in both fields. You know, I love literary ideas and I love music, but putting them together, I just can't get it. I, I can, <laughs> I'll never go see a Broadway musical ever. I, oh. I don't, I, I well, have no, no desire. And I, and it's a shame for me to say this because I, I shouldn't be, I'm not devaluing the art form, but like just, a story and it's to break to a choreographed song like they all get it like i can't suspend belief long enough to kind of you know, to get to get into it that way but that being said um yeah when i think of you know people like rogers and hammerstein and weber and these composers right. I, I just i have a lot of respect for how they write because that takes a lot of a lot of imagination and a lot of knowledge of you know just how music needs to operate in terms of storytelling which is right. quite fascinating to be able to do I really enjoyed musicals as a kid. I haven't seen one for a long, long, long time. Um, but yeah, there's, I've seen Phantom on Broadway and I've seen just tons of, I, I enjoy the, I mean, most of the time I'm looking at the pit, <laughs> yeah, yeah. watching the musicians, um, just, just how it all comes together. That's just really, really cool. I had to play a gig um, two years ago. I was called by my school to play a gig for high school musical mm. because they, their guitar player dropped out the last minute and they said, you know, Mr. Skull, so I know you teach literature there, but are you willing to hear your guitar player can do the show? He said, we'll pay you. I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll go ahead and play it. It was the most excruciating two hours of my life. <laughs> I, I mean, and learning the charts, I'm like, my, even my wife's coming down saying, are you really playing that? I'm like, yeah, I'm really playing this. It was like, not to knock the musical. I just, I, it's not me. Can't do it. 
And I was, I was even trying to like, I was trying to get into it. I was like, I was like, okay, I'm going to salvage this experience. So like there's certain tracks in high school musical. I was going to put like delay effects and phasers and different things on there. And I was just trying, you know, to kind of make it my own. I get into the pit. You're like, no, we don't want any of that stuff. Play, play the chart as is. I'm like, mm-hmm. well, I, I really enjoyed what I heard of Jesus Christ Superstar. I like it had a very 70s set. Like it was not. It's like early rock kind of sound, like yeah. Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young kind of rock, like the tones, the the production value, All right? And you know, it would go from like a big upbeat kind of rock song to almost like an aria that right. must have had some plot. Um, you know, they were talking about something in the plot, but I really found myself constantly listening to the bass. I really, really enjoyed the bass playing on the songs that I listen to is it electric bass or is it like upright or? It, it's an electric bass it's, okay. it's really there's a lot of movement in the bass he doesn't sit on the root note he's really moving around a lot and i'm i'm working on expanding my my bass playing abilities but so I'm, I'm not the greatest bass player but i really appreciated what he was doing and it's actually made me want to like sit down and try to learn what he's doing on the bass mm. Interesting you said that, not, not to, to move the conversation there, but um, I found that if you really want to get, I was just having this lesson with, with a student a few days ago, that if you really want to get a sense of how to compose and feel progression, start writing on bass guitar. Mm-hmm. There's something about just having, having a bass in your hands that lends you more to hearing harmonies that are not really there, you know, in, in sort of in the ether, but you kind of have to audiate things a lot more. And plus, just, it's, a, it's a really neat instrument to learn to play. Oh, my gosh. You know, I, I love bass, you know. Yeah. I, I, w- I would love to actually. I should get one. I, sh- you know, I used to teach bass in the studio a lot, but I would love to. Yeah, see? Yeah. Very, very, very cool. Yeah. Anytime there's a band that's missing the bassist where I work, I'm like, oh, yeah, I get to yeah. play bass today. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah, because even, even tonally speaking, there's a lot of power in the bass. Oh, my gosh, yes. I think it's overlooked wow. a lot in bands, you know. And then when you get guys like Getty and... Claypool and you know all these and Flea mm-hmm. and these guys that kind of dominate that that sonic region. You know I love those bands because it is a very powerful instrument. Oh my gosh, love yes. it. Yeah, I mean the Chili Peppers are great because of Fleet. Like he's what I listen to. Like, yeah, well, well, for sure, eighty percent of my yeah. brainwaves go to yeah. go to Fleet. Probably I like yeah, Fleet sure. County, but yeah, but no, I get that. Certain bands are on bass, and it makes it for me. Yeah, no, I, I, I hear it because I think it's many people, you know, but he's got more of a larger than life attitude anyway, even the presence on stage, but even on the records, yeah. like you can hear, it just cuts through everything. Plus it's the one frequency that dominates regions of, you know, the spectrum, it cuts through things, you know, it's got mm-hmm. a lot of physical power behind it. Yeah, when it's not there, you certainly know it, that's for sure. That's right. Uh, even when you're playing bass um, and there are times when I'll be experimenting with a band, um, when you go for like a fill and you mm-hmm. go up into the neck and you're like, Ooh, that, you know, bottom end falls yeah. Out. yeah, the bottom end falls out and you're like, okay, I can, it's, it's a weird animal to kind of play with where you have to know when and where to kind of place that tasty stuff because you have mm-hmm. to keep that low end. You have to keep it locked in with, with the kick drum and the, the drummer, that foundation, you have to, you have to keep that solid. Whereas if you stray away from that, it's kind of like, Ooh, that felt weird. That's not right. When I was growing up, my teachers would always tell me like the bass should always match the kick. Right. Yeah. That was the one mm-hmm. thing, but this is like in the eighties when it was a, like, literally it had to be a tone for every kick drum hit that you had. And it wasn't until later when I started listening to like other bassists, I'm like, wow, that really, this really is a very expressive instrument. It's never pitched that way. At least it wasn't in the eighties. It wasn't pitched that way in modern or eighties rock, I should say. But you know, if you look at other players, you know, especially Jeff Berlin, Jeff kind of approaches the bass like a melodic instrument. If you're listening to him play stuff. Mm. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of neat, lot of neat lines. So, so I've been reading, uh, Victor Wooten's the music lesson. I brought it up another time. I've been yeah, slowly yeah. making my way right, through because right. I'm reading multiple things, but there's a, a great passage in there where Victor's actually out on a gig and his mentor in the book is on the gig with him, filling in on guitar. And at break, he tells him like, if you want to make 
if you want to get hired for gigs and you want to make the whole band sound better, but nobody's going to realize it was you that did it. He was talking about like when the saxophone player goes to take a solo and he, you feel like he's getting towards the peak of his solo. You work your way up the, the essentially the scale or whatever you work your way up an octave or two octaves over the course of a few bars and get up to a, a pedal tone, like the root note and pedal on it for like eight bars. The, the, the whole time that he's climaxing in his solo, the saxophone player and like the drummer picked up on it. He did it in the gig. And so like that creating the energy flow, it like created that sense of like, this is the climax. And then, at the right moment, he came. He walked his way back down the scale and back to the root, and that low end came back in. You know what I always wish would happen. I mean, I I think music students. I I wish they'd get this idea. You know, I've like stuff you're just talking about. Isn't it really true that what makes musicians really great musicians um, are the non musical things? You know, like being able, it's not, it has little to do with material, like you're, what you're playing. It has everything to do with how you think about your instrument, you know, how you think about entrances and exits and accents mm-hmm. and placement and timing. And it's like all the stuff that you really can't teach because how do you teach that stuff, you know, other than just like experience, right. you know, like learning how to do it by playing live. But I think students come to us and they're looking for like, well, how do we make this work? Well, I don't know. I mean, 10% of what we teach them or 90% of what we teach them is really 10% of the good stuff. Right. You know what I'm saying? And it's, uh, I think there's a lot, a lot to be said for just, you know, you want to learn how to play? All right, get out on a stage and play. <laughs> get in with a band and get knocked around a little bit, and then you start really learning your stuff. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's true. It's very true. You, you kind of have to go through the, the trenches in order to kind of figure out on the other side of it what, what it all means and how to actually phrase and... The whole yeah. thing, the whole thing. It's just, I mean, you ever try to teach, teach somebody how to play in pocket? <laughs> Holy shit. I can't even, I don't think you can even do that. We've yeah. tried, right? How do you, how do you teach that? How do you teach feel? You know, you really can't, you know, it's more of a matter of setting up, you know, a space for students to play and hopefully they feel it, <laughs> you know, it helps to have musical examples of someone playing, on top of the beat or playing a little behind the beat so they can at least hear it and try to imitate it. Yeah. Even then though, you, you, um, the student has to be ready for that. You have to go through a good period of playing and, and understanding of what that actually means. Like even just to hear it, you're kind of like, yeah, kind of hear it. But once you actually are put in that position and you can kind of, again, feel the push or the pull of the beat and that pocket, then all of a sudden, then that light bulb starts to kind of flicker in. You kind of going, wait, wait, oh, okay. I'm starting to feel that. Now I'm starting to get what you're talking about. Like, yeah, I, I think it's important that you start off with that idea of here's what behind the beat and ahead of the beat and in the pocket means. Um, but until it's actually under your fingers. And, and like I said, you, you have the student has to be ready for that. That's not something that you can teach them in the first year or yeah. two <laughs> i know for me it was like i struggled with that for a, a good bit of time and it was you know you do have that moment where you're like okay i think i'm starting to understand what this pocket is and having I, some command over it yeah i hate to say it but I, I mean i think maybe you know one of the things that we should go toward and this would be just killer for any kind of um systematized instruction, but like have a student with you for about a year and then, and then send them off and and let them figure it out. Because I think self-teaching this kind of stuff is the way to go. Like really understanding just playing, you know, with bands and playing with people and just getting involved in musicianship, I think is something that you really can't do sitting one-on-one in a studio. I've tried it. I tried it. I mean, how many years have we been trying to teach this stuff? Here's a great example of what you know, playing in this particular zone of feel is like, and it's just, it's hard to transmit. But it's why hard. can't they do that at the same time? I, that's that's ah. what I was just going to say. I think, I think at the same time where being able to do that stuff within a band and be able to explore within a band yourself, extremely important, but at the same time, private lessons, um, being able to take, certain concepts that don't apply to the band 
uh, whether it's technique or rhythm or whatever it is, um, that's extremely important. I mean, I've got a, a handful, if not more, of students in my head where I'm like, yeah, I even the ones that are just in band, I'm like, yeah, I wish they would be taking private lessons because there's there's stuff that they need to be working on. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I for me, it's like, I, let's get to, this will lead into like my pick, all right, for, okay. for, for where this is going. Uh, when I was a co composition student, you know, um, I had Paul Barson was my teacher, just incredible composer and incredible teacher. Taught me a lot about how to live a creative lifestyle. I learned a lot from this guy. And I was such a shitty student <laughs> because like he was trying to show me really relevatory things, but I wasn't ready. And it wasn't until I kind of went on my own and started like doing some self-teaching work and studying. There's like, oh, that's what he was talking about. Oh, that makes sense. You know what I mean? So I think maybe a large part of it is, is readiness, you know? Like for instance, so so my, my, my pick, and it's really hard for me to think about, you know, like one particular album, but if I had to look at my list and all this stuff, I would have to say the most influential record for me is Frank Zappa's Apostrophe. Oh, okay. Without a doubt. That, that album just... Listening the whole way through, I'm going like, wow, okay. <laughs> Not only can you do that kind of stuff, but you can literally be a human being that thinks of that kind of stuff. Don't, you, don't you eat that yellow snow? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that just changed the rules. Yeah, that, that was across amazing. the board for me. Amazing album. Really, just really changed good. The rules. Yeah. yeah. And he's not even singing. He's like, it's not even normal music in the, in the normal sense. He's like speaking, telling a story in a lot of these songs. Well, that's just it. I think it's more of like, it, it sort of broke down the rules of what music is defined as, right? I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's literally, uh, for me, I think I look at it now as like, we have music particularly, and we have composing. And, and they're not always mutually exclusive, but I think that record was, was a really good way of kind of bringing them together and saying, mm -hmm. like, because we can, can, we can compose by mixing sounds. So like Zappa was into this guy called Verez. Um, if you guys ever want to, like, listen to, um, like, listen to albums, like, um, from Zappa when he was with Mothers of Invention, like Weasels Rip My Flesh, that's a really good record. But if you listen to Weasels Rip My Flesh, that is Edgar Verez. And uh, if you're interested, Verez was his composer. I think he was, uh, I want to say, Danish, maybe I have that wrong, but he did pieces like ionization. Listen to that one, <coughs> right? Um, or deserts even. And uh, these pieces were literally, he was mixing sounds together. So he would like take like a, like what do they call it? Like a, not an air horn, but those things that kind of, you, you know, you turn the crank and it makes a yeah. that thing. Okay. Yeah. He would take that as the primary instrument and he'd put it in, he'd mix it in with other uh, musical yeah, this musical chemistry, he put things, mixing sounds. And that was highly influential uh, on Zappa's early work. So when you get to apostrophe, he has all that stuff mixed in with all the pop stuff of the day, mm -hmm. you know? And, and lyrically speaking, I mean, the guy's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> come on. He's, he's doing certain uh, moves lyrically in that album that are just like genius. Like, like co well, Cosmic Debris. Oh, my gosh. You know, like poking fun at spiritual gurus and, and the bullshit they throw out, you know. And so a lot of it's very satirical. I mean, Zappa yeah. was able to satirize American culture and how stupid we can be in some cases and how we're not thinking about certain things and we're driven materialistically or whatnot and his political views and stuff. But as all satirists do, he has a medium to talk about that stuff and then have this really cool, you know, music that even sounds humorous, like with the vibes and, you yeah. know what I mean? And even like in Cosmic Debris, I'll never forget it. There's one, there's, yeah. Well, there's one lyric in Cosmic Debris. It's like it's like a can of whipped cream. The pop topped off, right? The, the, the cap popped off, and it, you hear the vibes go. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, like yeah. Like, the, like the cap like hits the floor. Like holy shit, that's brilliant, you know. And guys like uh, who was doing that? Um, I can't think. Uh, symphony Fantastique. Who wrote that? Uh, it was an old symphony. Um, I know what you're talking about. Romantic yeah, romantic period where like the head was cut off by the guillotine and the head mm -hmm. was rolling on the ground. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was so he was borrowing those classical elements in writing on that pop record. And I remember the history of that album where he said, I think it was Dweezil mm -hmm. was born in the in the hospital when he was mixing the record. So he was like going back and forth to the hospital to see his, his son and coming home and mixing the album. I just I love everything about that record. I think from front to back. I listened to the whole thing. And Aaron mentioned like concept record. If you, if you kind of listen to the whole thing, the first five tracks are one song. 
Mm-hmm. I, I know it's like eight songs on the record. Yeah, like two minute and a half, two minutes yeah, each. Yeah, right. And he yeah. Ne- he never has endings. Zappa never had an ending. He never did that. He just rolled one track into the next. Yeah. Like, I'm done with this now. I'm going to this thing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he just moves right in. It's like, so everything he was doing was breaking down boundaries. You know, and that was my first way in. And then, of course, you know, I became a big fan. So you get to like Joe's Garage, which is a different thing. Sheik Your Booty, which is very, <laughs> very uh, vulgar, yeah. and a lot, lyrically speaking, you know. And then it got me into The Mothers, which was like his earlier stuff. But I'd have to say, give Apostrophe a listen. Yeah, you know? amazing album. I, I, I remember listening to that nonstop when you and I were <laughs> together. And man, that's it's just... He does it very, very, very well. Like you said, there's all these little hints and little things and Easter eggs all throughout. You're yeah. just like, you can listen to it again to this day and be like, wow, okay. I, I never realized that was happening. That's that's awesome. He's just the way that he went about composing everything. And and you know, for me, it was all to tape. And all those musicians were like spot on and oh, yeah. all these stories about how Steve Vai would just like transcribe like note for note by ear and try to figure out all this stuff. And, and all these guys were doing this, like the demands that, that, that he had was just like, wow, Frank's Frank's on it, man. <laughs> Steve, Vai had to transcribe when he was fresh out of Berkeley, he went with Zappa's band and Frank, commissioned him to transcribe something called the black napkins, which was a Zappa composition. It was one of the hardest things Vi ever had to do. Mm. It, it, it literally drove him nuts. And think, I think the story goes where he actually went to Frank almost in a breakdown and said, I don't know if I can do this. This is Steve Vi we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And Frank was patient and said, just, you know, just get through it. You'll be fine. Take your time with it. Um, it's yeah. And I always love that because you, people look at Frank Zappa, like he's just this kind of quirky, goofy guy, but you dig deep. It's like, there's a lot of, there's a lot of complex stuff going on. If you get the chance, I would definitely recommend there's an interview with Rick Beato um, and Steve Vai, and they actually get into the whole um, Frank and all of what you're just kind of talking about and how they used to get into polyrhythms and how he had to just transcribe for him. And it was a really, it was not the normal interview that you have with Steve Vai. It was really good. I really enjoyed it. So if you get the chance, by all means, check that interview out. Um, and then another one that I would say um, to check out, since we are kind of talking about Frank and how he took those old school sounds and incorporated them into his music, there is a podcast called 20,000 Hertz. Um, I highly, highly recommend this podcast to anybody who is um, into sound. Um, They did an episode about a month or so ago on like ASMR Um, and they they just do a a bunch of stuff. And the reason why I say this is because last week they did uh, a podcast on just this idea of like sounds of like you were talking about the xylophone and the, you know, the whistle of going down and wily e. coyote plummeting to his mm-hmm. death and whatnot like that and where all that comes from um so you talking about frank and all his sounds that that was an excellent podcast they do a lot of stuff incorporating sound it's really really mm-hmm. really good episode okay yeah apostrophe awesome awesome and then there's yeah. the the one is just an all instrumental where I believe the title track. Yeah. Apostry. We played that in a band with chip. Remember that? Yeah. Wow. Remember we were trying to learn that piece. Yeah. Was, yeah. yeah. Didn't that one receive some commercial success, like mainstream apostrophe success? that uh, track specifically that track, the instrumental track. I don't know. Um, it's very, very possible. It was a very popular record. It's one of, one of his more widely, uh, sort of acknowledged albums. I think most people kind of know. Um, but you know, his later stuff, um, like he had, what was that once, uh, one track Valley girls or Valley girl, you know, it was on the, on the, the, uh, ship too late to save a drowning witch record. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like right, kind of a few years before he died. That one got a lot of radio airplay, you know, and stuff from Go- Joe's garage did too, which is another, I mean, if I had to pick another Zappa record is my in- influential favorite. It's that double album, Joe's garage. You know, that, that one is just really fantastic too, you know, but uh, apostrophe just I don't know for me it was just it was more of a it, it, it was just mind-blowing right like Aaron said you can listen to it today 
and there's just there's it's interesting there's there's stuff in behind the scenes you're like <laughs> like wow yeah. he's he really did that yeah okay yeah. Was... did so did satriani also study with um with frank zappa no or was it only vi i'm Vi-a. getting confused then. yeah so satch oh well speaking of satriani i know you, you uh, this week you kind of had a lot uh of listening for satriani mm-hmm. this guy was my wheelhouse aaron knows this i mean i, I spent <laughs> a lot of years on satch's material um, I, I've been listening to Satch since probably I was like 14 or 15 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, much of my legato styles come from him. Well, a lot of things come from him, uh, uh, honestly. But um, there's so much going on in his music. I mean, one thing I love about Satriani, if you guys get a chance, is to watch on YouTube. There is a lesson that Satriani did with Guitar Center with this contest winner. I love it. Mm-hmm. Oh, You've seen that? Isn't that yeah. great? Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, he kind of like critiques yeah, the... Right. Players really good. Yeah, like he can play the Satriani song. Yeah, and like what I love about it, I was just actually teaching this lesson a few days ago. I said to my student, "Watch that that um, that lesson that Satriani did because the one thing this guy, this kid who um, won the contest, like played Satch Boogie for him. Right? It was pretty good. It was actually like pretty nailed in. And even Joe's like, this is really good. Until the very end of the lesson, where the guy said, "What do you think I should work on?" He's like, "All right, I'll play a G." Right. And they just kind of did the chug. And he said, all right, I'm going to take a solo. And after all that shredding, the only thing this kid knew how to do was play in the G minor pentatonic box in the third mm-hmm. fret position. And Joe's like, we'll do something else. He's like, he moved it up to the 15th fret. So his, his knowledge of scales was limited right. in this improvisational thing. And Joe's like, no, no, no. You know, you want to start thinking like in different scalar systems. And then Joe took a solo and he just something on like one single string. Where he's like incorporating Lydian forms and, and stuff. So it was really a fascinating uh, expose if any, any people out there want to get a sense of who Satch was beyond the curtain because you know Satriani for those that don't know was pretty much like us he was a guitar instructor you know in the in the Bay Area of San Francisco for many years before uh, he was playing with Greg Kin band uh, he had this band called Squares in the Bay Area but then his you know his instrumental stuff really took off um, starting with Not of This Earth which I think is a fantastic entry level Satch record. One of my favorites, actually, I think. It was his very first album, Not of the Surf. Then you get to Surfing with the Alien, and just like he just blew the doors wide open on people. Yeah. Yeah. But when you get to uh, Flying in a Blue Dream, that's my favorite, I think. By that point, his writing skill had honed into a nice mix of technique and taste, you yeah. know? And I, I just thought that, that album for me was like was the best one across the board. Yeah. So but I don't think he ever stayed with Zappa. No, that was, that was Vi. Vi, okay. uh, Vi got into Zappa through Berkeley, you know. And then after that, Vi went to Satriani. No, Satriani was really? his first teacher. Yeah. So yeah. Oh, okay. So Satch taught him how to play from scratch, basically. Oh yeah. wow. Like the story goes that he showed up at Satriani's door one day. He had his guitar in one hand and a pack of strings in the other. He said, "What do I do with these things?" Literally, <laughs> yeah. And Satch sat him wow. down, and they and they started. And he was his teacher for many years until he went to Berkeley School. Yeah. What What I really enjoy about Satriani is. Like, like, yes, he can shred on the guitar technically, but he, his compositions are really interesting to me. And like, he's got such a wide variety of sounds that he, he pulls out, like even on one record, like on flying in a blue dream, he goes from, yeah. I mean, flying in a blue dream is what, like, I feel like I'm like floating in the clouds. I, I, when I, I listen to that. I exactly, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Phenomenal. That album, literally, my when I listen to that record now, I'm transported back to when I'm 14 years old, yeah. sitting on the beach in New Jersey where my 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 uh, family used to live on the shoreline, mm-hmm. and like looking in the clouds and like listening to that record, and it's like everything was like light and free and fun and awesome, and, <laughs> you know, right? But there's a lot of good stuff in between the lines there. Like his his writing is so good on that record, you know. But you're right yeah. across the entire spectrum of that album, it feels like you're floating. Oh yeah, especially that track. But he yeah. really goes from that. He's got like, I don't remember the name of all the names of all the tracks, but he's got one where he's got like really overdriven harmonica ripping on it. He's got oh, that's uh, really is that big bad moon or big bad moon was the the blues the blues the track off there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he's got yeah. some with acoustic sounds and uh, I uh, believe was the ballad. Which is mm-hmm. really great on that record. Uh, Ride, yeah, really catchy. That, huh? kind of nice. Yeah, catchy hook drive was was that one. And then he gets into like the bells of something, uh, 
Lalal or something like that, where he's pulling from. He actually has a has an affinity for comics. I don't know if you knew this. Like Surf with the Alien is a Silver Surfer. Right. Oh, it's the it's a, it's a comic book okay. hero. Yeah, and the Bells of Lalal, I think, is the name of it. Was the was one of the love interests of uh, the Silver Surfer was in his, in his human form and was, yeah. But anyway, so like in those tracks, he's doing all the polyphonic stuff day at the beach, right? That poly, I mean, it's like, Oh man, it's like there was the, on that vanilla track I recorded a few years ago. I yeah. largely borrowed that. That was like that middle section I did came from that album. Mm-hmm. You know, I credit him for all those ideas about, you know, how to move tones in both right and left hand because the overall effect is like, this is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. And it's funny when I, I remember I was being, in, I was in Florida when I was uh, pushing that record and I was at a party once. We're sitting outside and there's like a little campfire there and there was an acoustic guitar and I picked it up and I started playing Day at the Beach and everybody's like, what are you doing? Like, that is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. That is Joe. Joe, for me, Joe was like pushing those boundaries of what the guitar can do you know or at least i should say introducing players to new ideas on the fretboard that we didn't even think about you can play chords with two hands well stanley jordan was doing that before joe came around but the fact that like you said he was so tasty about it you know he and he listens to harmony so well and just the fact that here's a guitar player in the rock genre that knows theory really intensely wow like, yeah. what's a Lydian mode? I was 14 years old going, what's the Lydian thing? Oh, I'm going to start reading. Oh, there are modes of the scale? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And each mode is like, gives you different tonal characteristics. I can write in something called Locrian. Holy shit. Yeah. You know, it was just, it, my, for me, that was it. I think that record, um, yeah. Once I heard those albums, I was like, that's it. My, I knew my playing would never be, never be like it was. And there's not, and not to knock how I grew up because as Aaron and I even talked about on previous episodes, you know, there's like, I'm some of the most fun experiences on guitar was putting in master of puppets in my little boombox player. And back then cassette tapes used to run a half step fast. Remember that a half step higher. So you had to like retune your guitar wow. <laughs> even close. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah. Cause the, the tape would run faster. So you had to retune your guitar to, to work for the tone variance. Right. But I mean, that was the fun of it was like figuring things out by ear and, and learn stuff. But when I get to Satriani, I was like, okay, here's a player. This, this for me is a guitarist, guitar player. Yeah. Yeah. He's uh, for me, Satch was <sighs> coming out of something like Metallica um and that's the whole reason i kind of figured out satch is because metallica's guitarist kirk hammett that's the same thing joe satriani was his teacher teacher, right so so joe's actually taught many many people (laughs) um but for me uh, coming out of metallica and i was like all right well okay satch was his teacher let's listen to satch and then kind of listening to Satch and yeah, his legato runs and his technique are like just out of this world. But for me, the way that Satch phrases and knows when to let things just open and let those notes sing, and it doesn't have to be crazy technical. And he knows that fine balance between the two. He can really like always with you, always with me or always with me, mm-hmm. always with you, always with me. Yeah. Always with me, always with you, always yeah. with me, always with you. Yeah. Um, just the way that he kind of, it's not crazy technical, but it's tasty it, technical. It's tasty technical. Yeah. And the way that he kind of does that for me, that's why I was like, wow, Satch is like, he's his 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 ear knows when to put certain things in and when to really get like just a sweet, sick run. For me, that's why I chose Satch over Vi. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I enjoyed Vi a lot, but there was something about how he such phrased things which just really spoke to me when we when aaron and i saw the, G, the g3 tour with ingve i'll never forget we were in pittsburgh we watched this show and we had this very same conversation joe we had said ingve was on first mm-hmm. okay? <laughs> and ingve like even satriani said ingve is like a force of nature like but everything about ingve and it was funny because even ingve when he was done threw his guitar to his te- take his guitar off and threw it to his I'll tech i'll never forget and, that right and the I'll tech never- dropped the tech oh, dropped the guitar. Because the tech wasn't ready for him to throw it. Yeah, and, no and he's sitting there. He's like, <laughs> you said they're like, what just the hell just happened? Right. Anyway, so Ingve was his thing. And Ingve is Ingve, God. right? And then Vi gets up there next. And Vi's all about 
just larger than life lushness. And, but there's a bit of ego in there too. And mm. I love vice work. And then Joe gets up there last and he's just about everything about Joe was like cool, professional, you know, down to earth kind of guy. Here I am. But when he played, it's like people were into it. I would say the crowd went berserk when Satriani took the stage more than the other two guys. And he makes it look effortless. Like he's oh, just, yeah. he's like not even like actually holding the guitar. It's just kind of like air. Yeah. He's yeah. Just yeah, yeah. Playing air where the other guys, they just like, and it's not, I'm they're not knocking any of the other. No, but they're exerting force. Yeah, yeah. They're exerting force. And Joe's just kind of just like, yeah. very relaxed and laid back. And yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. Probably my favorite <laughs> guitarist of all time would be Satriani. Yeah. 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 Very neat. Yeah, and I, I even respect the guy now. I mean, I'm not a big for big for sellouts. Uh, I'm not saying he did, but you know, Satch is in a phase now where he's up there on stage with the with the glasses and yeah, it's mm-hmm. very, very. You know, what I'm saying very more commercial. I, I still like his stuff. You know? See, I don't. I don't like. I don't like Joe's stuff now. I well, it's more. Yeah, it's it's form. It's becoming formulaic. Well, I, I shouldn't say it's been. I think engines of creation. Uh, those later records, even Time Machine, to some degree, was beginning a bit formula. Um, but his l- later releases have been kind of going back to roots a little bit, you know, but yeah. for me, nothing beats the early albums. Yeah. See, I, Not I, Earth, Dream in 11, his more, his more mod, the stuff that he's putting out now, um, I can tell that he's not, and it goes for any artist. It's like the third album thing, you know, it's usually the third album for most artists that are like, wow, that is that's the album. This album, the third album is great. It's that's this is like, you know, a good mix of like technical and they're starting to really get their, you know, storytelling down and the third album, that's just that's it and you can tell that they've actually spent time composing and really thinking about their parts and they've spent time. Whereas the the newer ones for me, they just don't feel like that. They almost feel like they're just put together and I don't get the whole, you know, Satch Boogie or, you know, Flying in a Blue mm-hmm. Dream or there's day, a, there's, day at the Beach where it's like, that was different. The magic is, is not, I, I, I said this from day one with any creator. I think most creators in their life go through a magical period. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, their, it's their magical years. And after that, on the, on the fringe of those magical years, I think they're just turning wheels. I hate to say it, but I, 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 even in literature, you kind of see that too. Yeah. You know, I'm not sure what that is. That, is. that brings up a really good question. Like, do, to be a creative person doesn't mean you only get a bit, of, you know, a bit of time to do your great work. And after that, it's just kind of fruitless, you know, or is, this, or is that completely wrong? And maybe it's just the way things kind of come together. I don't know, but it's a really good conversation. Got to have. Okay. Hey. 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 Oh yeah, speaking of that's awesome. Hi. All right, guys, what do we oh, think? Can you say hi? Hi. <laughs> right there, say hi. hi. <laughs> Closing comments. I, I want to say that I love Satriani. I find his his style is it's harder to get away using that in a lot of musical situations. Um and I, I feel like he's he's like technically just phenomenal but i i feel like if i was to go and try to play some satriani at a gig it it would be too much for normal people and so i don't find it as useful in what i'm doing not to say it's not incredible in any way i i do find i'm drawn more towards eric johnson's playing because i feel like it is like if you put a cascading eric run in a jimmy buffett song it's just like (laughs) it's okay it sounds it can work if you start tapping and, you know, getting into playing crazy uh, exotic scales and something, it's not, not necessarily as, as friendly sounding to normal ears. Yeah. Well, I think it's about usage, too, and, you know, how, you know, the audiences are ready for certain things you throw in there in the mix. But, yeah, great stuff. Well, guys. What do we think? This, this will require. I think this requires another two episodes, don't you think? Yeah, I think that we're, that we're going to have to go into this a little bit more. Boy, with like one album a piece. Yeah, a few. <laughs> yeah, plus, plus Joe. Yeah, Satch Johnny. All right, guys. Good luck. Uh, have a great week. Yeah. Thank you for right. uh, tuning in, everybody. And um, we've got, uh, I believe, a another guest host next week. Um, should be good.
Yeah. All right, Fred Buzzers. See you guys from Wyoming. Yeah. Have fun. Enjoy the view. Yeah. See you know, yeah. All right, guys. Have a good week. We'll see you soon. All right. Bye. 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 <laughs> Why are people talking to the camera? I got stuck with the pillow. Let's get some slurping sounds from you. Let's keep that in the. Put that at the end of the episode today.